everyone. Welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week, it's a Brexit-themed podcast. We start by me saying we've hit peak Barnier. Michel Barnier, the EU negotiator, has had a great run, but he's still stuck in the Brexit mud as the finishing line for negotiations is coming into sight. That means that politicians are going to start elbowing him out of the way in the rush to finalise a political deal that has so far eluded the civil servants. To prove that point, the UK Brexit Secretary Dominic Raab has now published dozens of contingency plans in language that sounded more like an in-flight safety video than anything else. But if in the unlikely event of an emergency Brexit landing, to use Raab's terminology, he has assured us that at least 7,000 people are already working on Brexit preparations. But as our main guest this week, a joint interview with the Institute for Governments Jill Rutter and Joe Owen will illustrate, it's not just the plans that count, it's how they're communicated to the people who need to cope with Brexit. And that's much harder and much less advanced work. Rudder and Owen also talk about the problems of the lack of a Brexit safety net and the non-disclosure agreements the government has with some organisations helping them to cope with Brexit. I also push them on what they think the real deadline for a deal is and how things will play out in the UK Parliament. Remember, we spoke on Tuesday before the government's contingency plans were published. We're shifting into the real end game to use an American term of Brexit negotiations. We're starting to see more and more politicians rather than civil servants entering the fray. And the UK this week is announcing both its export strategy and contingency plans if a deal can't be done. With me now are Jill Rutter and Joe Owen from the Institute for Government in London, who've put out a new paper on what surprises we might expect in coming weeks. To get us started, maybe could you briefly sketch out what you see as the most likely scenarios in these coming weeks? You've detailed five of them in the paper you've just published. So we set out in our paper that we published on Monday, we set out five possible uh, scenarios. One of the problems at the moment for the UK government is that the defaults are all set to no deal. So you need positive things to happen to avert a no deal exit. First, the Prime Minister needs a deal with the EU, but then she needs to assemble a parliamentary majority for that deal. And if she fails to do that, then... The Article 50 deadline looms. That's uh, that's in the letter she wrote to Donald Tusk on 29th March 2017 that set the clock ticking. The UK leaves on 29th March 2019 without a deal. And that's also now in UK legislation. The EU Withdrawal Act that got royal assent back before Parliament broke up for its summer holidays also puts into law that exit day is the 29th of March 2019. So basically the UK is set to leave unless there's a parliamentary majority to endorse a deal that the Prime Minister is able to bring back from Brussels. So then we looked at what Parliament might do. Parliament obviously can vote a thumbs up on the deal or it can vote it down and the government could just say, well, OK, we can't get that deal through, we'll settle for that. Or the government could go back and try and get a different deal out of the EU. Then, of course, it's up to the EU whether it decides that it's prepared to reopen that negotiation and whether any deal would emerge from that would actually have a better sort of route to success and end up on that deal route show with a revised deal. So the scenarios sort of loop around. One of the things that I think emerges from the work we did is that there's a bit of a risk of what you might describe as a sort of doom loop where the Prime Minister gets something, Parliament doesn't like it, 
sent her back for more, may or may not get something more out of the EU. Parliament still doesn't like it. But that's all against the backdrop of this clicking clock. Mm -hmm. Then on the other side, obviously, there is the risk that there's no deal. And remember, one of the big battles in the EU withdrawal bill is what's the role of Parliament if the government doesn't get a deal. Government had always said you'll get a vote on a deal, but had been absolutely silent on any parliamentary role if there was no deal. So on that, there is now a sort of fallback thing, including the EU Withdrawal Act, that if there's no deal by the 21st of January 2019, a new date for your diary, then within five days of that, ministers have to table what's called a take-note motion, so a neutral motion. Lots of debates about that because that's not supposed to be amendable to take note of the fact there's no deal. So Parliament would have a debate about that. What's very, very unclear is whether Parliament would then be able to instruct the government to do something about the fact that there was no deal. Joe, maybe could you tell us a bit how you see the UK government and its readiness when it comes to coping with a bumpy or a disorderly Brexit? Have they done their homework needed to cope in that situation? Since March last year, there has been planning happening around government on what no deal may or may not look like. But there was a real emphasis at the end of last year on trying to secure a transition or implementation period. And I think if you speak to people, it certainly seems the case that the focus on no deal has certainly really ramped up over the last few weeks and months. We are now just over six months away. And unless the government starts talking publicly about how it plans to respond to no deal, then it's going to be in trouble because it's not just government that needs to be ready for no deal. It's all of the private sector organisation, businesses who are involved in trading, port authorities, all of these different web of organisations who, unless they're ready, it doesn't matter if government pulls a rabbit out of the hat at the end of March next year and says, look at all our brand new systems and infrastructure and people that we've got to service no deal. Uh, if the people who need to interact with all of that aren't ready, then you still end up with disruption. So I think we're getting to quite a critical point now. If you take the, the border, there are, I think, over 145,000 traders who solely trade with the EU who could be required to make customs declarations for the first time ever after March next year. And we know the government has said that they have not started speaking to that group yet. They are yet to sort of engage them and tell them what would be expected. And often this falls to your sort of small, medium-sized organisations. HMRC, the department here who are responsible for customs, are also rolling out this big programme on new technology around tax. And they've had real difficulties over the last few years and have had to sort of postpone timelines precisely because of the difficulty of reaching small, medium-sized organisations. And that's going to be the case when you get to these 145,000-odd traders, how you communicate with them, how you ensure that they know what they need to do and when. The sort of other end, we've just seen a letter from the sort of organisation that represents trusts that are part of the National Health Service and they're all saying that actually they're having to do their own contingency planning. These are part of government. I mean, this is the biggest public service that the government runs effectively through a body called NHS England. But they're complaining that they're not getting the information that they need from government. So this isn't talking about loads of little bitty private sector firms. This is talking about, you know, a big key public service. 
that they don't know what plans they're supposed to be making to deal with the possibility of disruption to supply chains or potentially sort of workforce disruption if people aren't clear about their status post-Brexit and things like that. So I think it's really, really interesting that that's an area where you'd have thought the one thing the government would have pretty much at the top of its list is making sure that the NHS could keep functioning. Absolutely. And maybe to switch it a little bit now to what the government can do to avoid that situation and salvage a deal, it strikes me that one of the ways that the government can paper over some of its divisions is to get some kind of vague commitment out of the EU on what that future relationship is going to look like. And the EU has always said, let's do the withdrawal agreement first, then talk about the future relationship. But I'm guessing that Downing Street would like to be able to have at least some outline that it could use to get all of the Conservative MPs on board with whatever sort of soft Brexit and transition plan they can squeeze out of Brussels. Does that tally with your assessment of the situation? Or do you think they have some different tactics in mind? I think it's a really interesting question. I think it's quite a big division, actually, within the Cabinet on the merits of detail on the future framework. David Davis, you know, the former Brexit secretary who resigned over the Chequers plan, was pretty clear if you were going to get the withdrawal agreement through, which was pretty unpalatable to a lot of Brexiteers because you've got to write over a big cheque and accept sort of, you know, this standstill transition with us as a quasi-EU member for another uh, 21 months, you actually needed to be able to show show them the sort of, you know, detail on the future relationship. And he thought and kept on arguing that it was feasible to negotiate a detailed relationship in the time frame and basically have something sort of good to go pretty much as soon as we became a third country. I think other people think that actually it's the detail that causes the splits, and we saw that the Prime Minister's Mansion House speech back in March managed to keep Cabinet unity. She didn't have any resignations over that and was supported by both sides of her party. It was a bit all things to all people. The moment she started making some of those choices and, you know, plumping for a common rule book, etc., in checkers, that's when she saw her high-profile departures of Boris Johnson and David Davis. But it also goes to feasibility. You know, basically, the UK got its verdict of sufficient progress last December, but then took until July to put forward its detailed proposal on what sort of relationship it wants. There's not that much time left if you expect this to be agreed alongside the withdrawal agreement to actually flesh out a very detailed future framework. So I think we're up against some practicalities there as well. One of the things people are really quite worried about in the UK, I think, is that they see our big bargaining chip as being the money. Uh, Mm -hmm. The EU always has problems, obviously facing problems next to MFF with the loss of the UK contribution. So we've always thought money is our big bargaining chip. And if Theresa May's government can get to the point of putting some kind of deal to the UK Parliament for a vote, what tactics might she use to force it through? It's been fairly messy in all of these votes so far. She wins most of them, she loses some of them. And I guess I'm wondering, would she be willing to tie a Brexit vote to a no-confidence vote, similar to the way that John Major did over the Maastricht Treaty? I was actually working in number 10 when John Major was using confidence vote to get the Maastricht vote through. And I remember we were all being told the government might fall tomorrow. I was working in the policy unit with some people who were political appointees and whose jobs would terminate the moment the government fell. And we really thought the government might fall the next day. That's not the process anymore after the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. If the government did lose that, the Prime Minister could resign. She could say, 
know, I'm going to treat this as an issue of confidence in me. I'll go. The government could say, if you don't back us, we'll all go. But then actually, that doesn't trigger an automatic general election anymore. There has to be a separate process around that. And basically, a big majority in the Commons has to vote for there to be a general election. So you can only really get a general election these days if, as happened in 2017, when the Prime Minister wanted her election, if you get both the government and the opposition voting for a general election. So it's not the tactic it was. Another thing we thought she might do, but this would depend, I think, really critically on both the sort of deal she was offering and on counting, and makes her very, very dependent on the Labour Party and Labour rebels, would be to do what Edward Heath did to get UK accessions through way back in the 1970s, which is to make it a free vote. That means you say, well, actually, you know, this is such an important issue. I'm going to let MPs vote with their conscience. I'm not going to apply the whip so you aren't being forced to tow the party line and see whether something like that, if she had some sort of soft Brexity solution that she thinks she's got a sort of bare majority for in her party, but can attract some of the sort of Labour Remainers, soft Brexiteers. So that's all possibly available to her, but uh, uh, but quite difficult yeah. with the parliamentary arithmetic as it is. And with Labour, which actually, you know, first priority is to bring down the government if it can, rather than to secure a deal. I think those Labour tactics are pretty clear that whatever deal the Prime Minister brings back will fail their six tests that they set out last year and that they will be pretty determined to use this as an opportunity to try and bring down the government. And what's interesting from a Brussels perspective on all of those points you made is that you haven't mentioned the prospect of a second referendum. And I raise that because I think there's a lot of people in the EU 27 countries, also here in Brussels specifically, who would still love the UK to reverse course. And they kind of see a surface level of division in the UK around this, but they maybe don't see all of the things that underpin the UK debate and which would make it difficult for there to be a second referendum. How realistic is that? Is it a, a 1%, a 5%, a 20% chance uh, that we might end up in some kind of second referendum where Theresa May basically punts it to the voters uh, if she's not able to get a majority for what she wants in Parliament? It's possible, I think. And I would say it's possible, and I think it's an increasing possibility but I wouldn't rate it as very, very high possibility. I think one of the sort of things is, one of the real difficulties is what's the referendum actually about? Because in the autumn, what we have is the withdrawal agreement. I don't think anyone's really proposing that we have a referendum about the technicalities of the Irish backstop or the financial settlement. Actually, if you put to the people, we'll write a cheque of uh, £39 billion to Brussels. I think you'd pretty well know which way the referendum would go on that one. But I think given that the initial referendum result was to leave, I think you still have to have a leave option on the table. It's not clear. People say put the Prime Minister's deal to a referendum. But the Prime Minister may have made a proposition in Chequers. The EU made pretty clear that it doesn't see that as basically the final deal. So are we voting on that? There are various people who want a referendum who basically want to take an off-the-shelf option like joining the European Economic Area and parking ourselves in a sort of Norway zone, either long-term or at least until we sort of sorted ourselves out a bit more and worked out what we 
what we really want. Uh, so is it EEA? Is it EEA plus a customs union? So I think the real sort of question, I mean, you know, it's going to be a multiple choice referendum. Justine Greening, who until January was the education secretary here and is now on the conservative backbenches, suggested a three-part referendum. So like an alternative vote where you go one, two, three. So I think some of the logistics are quite difficult. There's also a question of timing. I know the Greeks managed to organise a referendum on one of the many sort of bailout packages within a week. Our electoral commissioners said to do a referendum well. They think it takes six months. They say they would do it, you know, whatever. But, I mean, they make it pretty clear that you know, there is a clear time quality trade-off in mm-hmm. getting a referendum. You'd need legislation to do a referendum. The UK doesn't have rules on how to do referenda. We're not a country that tends to use them very often. So we have to make up the rules every time we do them. We need to decide what the franchise was. So that was quite controversial last time over the votes for 16 to 18-year-olds. They got to vote in the Scottish independence referendum. They didn't get to vote on EU membership. That might have altered the result a bit. A lot of EU residents in the UK feel they were disenfranchised. They're allowed to vote in local and European elections here. They weren't allowed to vote in the referendum, though Commonwealth citizens could vote. UK residents in other EU countries found themselves disenfranchised. They were pretty miffed about that, not least because they don't think the government's doing a great job of protecting their future rights in the EU. So I think it's not the easy get-out-of-jail-free card that some people think it is. Maybe a couple of quick final questions. And since we're talking about the timings, I want to get a sense of what you think the real deadline is here for having some deals for people to vote on, whether it's parliaments, including the European Parliament, or another referendum. The EU has always said October needs to be the deadline, um, but we know that the EU always does things at the last minute. So my personal sense is October isn't the real deadline. It's more a guide. And obviously, there still needs to be some time to finalise legal texts, go through whatever votes are necessary, and also translate it into all of the EU's languages. But from your perspective, what do you think is the last minute that we could actually be presenting some deals on the table? In terms of UK process for ratification of international agreements, I think it's a procedure that they're laid before the House with 21 days for Parliament mm-hmm. to consider them. So that's a sort of backstop towards the back end of March that you would need to hit. But technically, all of you know these votes and the withdrawal agreement bill, the piece of legislation that the UK will need to pass to turn any agreement into law could get rattled through in a day or so if it, if it needed to. There are obviously time constraints on the EU side and it's less easy for the EU. Um, it's sort of more structure, more process that will need to be followed. Um, there, I think, you know, it's often sort of two months in terms of ratification for this kind of agreement. I think we would I, I think when we looked at it before, the quickest the EU had done something similar within two months. So I think the UK is not the constraint there because we, if a government with a majority can ram things through quite quickly, if it has to, it would be a bit of a mess. Obviously, you'd lose quite a lot of the benefits of having a transition if it went right and down into the wire. But the one thing we all know is that Article 50 extension requires unanimity. So that potentially makes you hostage to somebody with agreements unless you can all agree quite quickly that you want that. Indeed. So, In today's um, politics, so unanimity is in short supply. <laughs> Maybe one very final question. Are there any myths about Brexit that have been 
annoying you? Anything floating around that you'd like to put to bed and tell people this just is not true? I think one of the things that people don't get in the UK is how if you're an organization of 28 going down to 27 member states, you have to be very rules-based and the EU legal order isn't just a bunch of bureaucracy, but it actually sort of really matters and the EU is likely to want to apply its rules. So I think that's one of the things that's taken a bit of time to penetrate over here. I think one of the big developments we've seen is, and I think this is really the big difference between Chequers and the Prime Minister's Mansion House speech, is that the sort of Prime Minister started to realise that she actually needed to conduct the debate on the EU's terms rather than think there were sort of, you know, very special solutions out there for the UK. I think when you look at the parliamentary hurdles that the Prime Minister has to overcome over the next few months, you can kind of understand why that negotiation within the corridors of Westminster is so important because, you know, you look at the sort of flowchart that we laid out and you actually think, Maybe the deal with the EU is the easy bit, and actually the most challenging bit is going to be getting through those parliamentary hurdles. So I think you can kind of understand, not necessarily endorsing it, but understand why there's been such a focus on the UK trying to corral opinion in Westminster rather than focusing on Brussels. I mean, there's one final thing I would say. If there are lots of people in the EU who really think that you would be better off with the UK staying and the second referendum... The way in which the EU has conducted the negotiations hasn't actually, I think, won at huge numbers of additional friends over here. The sort of, you know, monthly sight of the UK being ticked off by Michel Barnier, undoubtedly doing, you know, exactly his job that has been asked to by the EU 27, hasn't actually made the EU look an incredibly appealing organisation to a lot of people who might have started off quite sceptically just a thought if we ever do approach a second referendum. Indeed, the EU is sometimes its own worst enemy when it comes to PR. I can attest to that from the inside here in Brussels. Uh, Well, Jill, Joe, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking and we'll have you back on EU Confidential sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Jill Rutter and Joe Owen from the Institute for Government. Coming up next, a brief Brussels Brains Trust session on a troubling tourist policy in Switzerland. And now we're welcoming back the Brussels Brains Trust. Hello, Alva Finn. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena. Hi, Lena Rabarus. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Alva. Lena, I think we can't call it EU WTF because it's in Switzerland. (laughs) So it's just kind of a continental WTF. But you were looking up a mountain view apartment in the village of Bietenberg in Switzerland. And they were openly advertising that women wearing headscarves are not welcome to come and stay in their apartment with, you know, funny little picture with a big sign through it saying don't come to our apartment we'll get on to what the apartment owner said to us when we contacted them but do you want to give us a rundown about how that made you feel and what your reaction was (laughs) i noticed them through instagram they are doing this promotion sponsored and i truly liked the photos and i said okay i need a break so i was looking into it and then i was reading about where to make the reservation and then I'm pum, saying that headscarf is prohibited and then very explicit photos there 
where they have the distinction between a headscarf, a burqa, and a niqab, stating that women with headscarf are not allowed. So I checked more online to see like a lot of conversations on TripAdvisor about this and the headscarf and the some family wanted to go from du- Dubai to there. And at first, I don't wear a headscarf, but it, it felt like super weird for me. And I immediately um, wanted like to call to ask. Uh, and then we, we got the reply, I think, through you, Ryan, uh, about their policy. Yeah. So what I did is I wrote to the apartment owners because they referred to this being a local regulation. And so I asked them, you know, which regulation is this that you're referring to? I couldn't find that online. And Francesca, or Francisca, who is one of the apartment owners, she wrote back, quote, it is a personal regulation of that apartment building. We are the only owners of the apartment who rent to foreign guests. All the other owners are elderly Swiss people. We have had severe problems with guests from Arabian countries and some others who were very arrogant, the men and did not respect our European slash Swiss rules. Therefore, the majority of the owners of the apartments do not want any guests with headscarf. We want to see the face and head of our guests. But maybe what Francisca doesn't realize, Lena, is how well connected you are, because you <laughs> then <laughs> I definitely don't think they do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Swiss ambassador and your own tourism minister to see what yeah. else might happen uh, yeah. when they knew about this. You know, when I read the, the reply, I got more furious because I realized the ignorance in this reply. First, not all Muslim women are from the Arab world, and not all Muslims they need to wear headscarves. The biggest percentage of Muslim community are from Southeast Asia. So when I read that, I said, very good. So there's a behavior, there's the arrogance, uh, there's the European values. But what if, let's say, these behavior came from somebody with a color or somebody with an Asian face? Or somebody well, with from men who uh, don't from tend to wear headscarves anyway. Yeah. So it's the men that were the problems, not the women. So, so, so the reply even is a huge discrimination, and it, especially coming from a country like Switzerland, they are the goddess of hospitality and hotelier. If anyone wants to go in the hospitality sector, you go to Lausanne, you go to Switzerland to learn. The biggest chain of hospitality are based in in Switzerland, and were born in Switzerland. So certainly, and all of those protocol and finishing absolutely, schools, and the etiquette and all that. Polite. Exactly. So, no, I would like to see how the license of these people and how they can pretend to be a touristic place. Oh, and you know there will be a license because it is Switzerland. So there's definitely definitely, going to be a severe set of regulations here. Definitely. Alva, what's your view from the middle of this discussion? I think that it's the answer that you got is very very interesting and i do think it speaks to what's behind some of the niqab and burqa bans actual legal bans that we have had introduced in other european countries which i am totally against and i do think that people can have a problem with women having to cover up on the basis of feminism and gender equality but telling a woman what she should and should not wear is absolutely not in the purview of ordinary citizens and it shouldn't be in legislation either. Everybody should be able to practice their religion as they see fit. The thing is that in that response that you got, it was more, not because we don't want people 
wearing headscarves because we think it's a, a women's issue. It's because we don't like, number one, people from Arab countries, and number two, men from our Arab countries, nothing to do with women. So it just goes to show you that, and I think the effect is usually, if you ban women from wearing headscarves or whatever they want to wear from somewhere, they won't go. And I think that's the point. The point behind some of these things is to keep them out of public spaces. And that is my problem with it. It isn't really about equality at all. It's about the fact that you don't like people who practice the Islamic faith. I think that's pretty clear because what was very striking to me is that this is a private indoor space. And as far as I understand it, that's the one situation where if you are observing a strict religious practice in that case, you're often not wearing it in the private indoor space. So it's very clearly not about what someone's doing in that space. It is some other kind of discrimination. Yeah, and and she links it to security and peace of mind. Such a labeling, such a big labeling to women that they chose just to cover their head. And by the way, in Islam, it's a choice. It's not an obligation. It's up to them. We have um, Orthodox Jews that the women, they cover their their hair. Uh, We have Christians still. You go to Rome and you see uh, and Greece and you see women with uh, covering their hair. So what do they do? They stop them from going there? I think this has to be They mustn't really get tackled. a lot of sun because they probably are stopping the other residents from wearing hats in the summer as well. Because yeah. that, that would be a real concern. And the arrogance part is policy. even worse, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, not saying that uh, Swiss people are the most modest nationality or this is really very much labeling and very discriminating, but we'll see. Well, thank you very much for the feedback. If we get any more feedback from the newfound fame of the SwissMountainView.ch apartment owners, because they might be getting some letters from some very important individuals, we'll let you know. Thanks for listening to EU Confidential. If you haven't already, you can sign up to receive the podcast each Thursday by registering at politico.eu forward slash registration. Podcasting is a team effort, so a big shout out to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin.